0: I want to draw your attention to that passage of scripture that was read in your hearing from John's Gospel, chapter 7. And those familiar words in verse 46, never man spake like this man. Now, we constantly have to remember that Jesus Christ had a flesh and blood existence in this world, breathing the oxygen of this world and held down by the gravity of of this world and he moved freely among human society um, he was born under Pontius Pilate so we knew he was a figure in history and he got involved in men's affairs um, he shared their joys at weddings he shared their sorrows at the loss of a loved one and wept with them he lev- lived in in close proximity to all that's commonplace in human society he was open to observation he was unlike John the Baptist he didn't spend his life in the wilderness and was dressed in uh, clothes that he'd made out of the camel's hair that the thorn bushes had pulled off the wandering camels that he wove into a, a camel's cloak and he'd cut a strip of a dead animal of leather, and he bound it together, and yet, ate locusts and wild honey. That was not Jesus. Jesus lived in a home with half-brothers and sisters, and uh, his mother and his mother's husband, and uh, he worked for 30 years in one location, and he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with men as well as, as with God. And he made a remarkable impression on on people um, his presence changed things when when he was in a, in a fellowship in a, a room with people. he was remarkable because of his works, extraordinary things that he could do, but m- maybe most of all he was extraordinary by his words and um, our text is. Commenting on that, never did men speak, never did any man speak like the Lord Jesus Christ, never in human history, not in ancient history, medieval, modern history, not today anywhere in the world.
1: Did anyone say, does anyone say the things that Jesus Christ said? It was what he said and how he spoke. That just
0: touched people. You remember the context of um, the these words. Are uh, they not spoken by believers? They're spoken by people who had contact with him. They are the native, natural reaction to listening to a sermon preached by Jesus Christ. The Pharisees um, were exasperated with him and his ministry and the influence. And the crowds that he gathered, and he was to gather 500 people around him in three years to be his disciples. It
1: was very effective, his ministry. And um, they, were, they were wanting
0: to take him in and stop him. So they sent two of their uh, private police force, their bully boys, country yokels, they sent them in to arrest him and bring him to them. So the boys went down, and he was in the temple, and he was preaching, and he was saying such things as, if you're thirsty, are you thirsty? Is there a soul thirst, a mind thirst? Are you conscious that all the things that you see and do and speak about, they're not satisfying you because you're made in God's image? Your hearts are restless, and you need to find your rest in him. Come to me and drink of the waters of life and, and out of you will flow then rivers of living water and you'll want to refresh other people. He was saying things like that. And uh, they tried to push their way through the crowd that was intent on listening and um, there were no public address systems. It was just his voice and no one was prepared to give way. They all wanted to hear what Jesus said and they ground to a halt and they had to listen and they forgot all about the mission that the pharisees had sent them on and they listened as jesus spoke and they were just staggered by all they heard and then he stopped and he just disappeared he went away and people were very quiet thinking of all they heard and they realized why they were there and that they'd failed in their mission and they went back empty-handed to the Pharisees. They knocked the door and they went in. Two of you, where's Jesus? And they looked at one another and they bowed their heads sheepishly. They said, "Um, no one ever spoke like, like him. That was the full answer. No one ever spoke like Jesus. Well, I want for a moment just to look at the background to that evaluation of Jesus Christ. Um, what was it in the actual verbal presentation of his message that created such discontinuity between himself and everyone else? Why did he stand out? Why does he stand out still today? Our unique lord and savior the son of god jesus christ i want to give you a number of answers the first answer is the authority with which he spoke we find out how people said on more than one occasion he speaks with authority (laughs) not like the scribes there was a certain imperiousness about the lord jesus christ in his message well now let's break up um, that authority into a number of strands what did that authority consist of and the first thing i want to say to you is that that authority consisted of his originality
1: his impressive independence of thought You see, they were used to listening to the the scribes.
0: And the scribes were the men who occupied the pulpits in the synagogue every Sabbath day. And the scribes would quote to people what the ancients said. They'd say, let's talk about divorce. And they would say, well, Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi Abraham says that. And they would shelter their own opinions
1: behind the words of other men. Well, the prophets did much the same.
0: Um, They were conscious of the derived nature of their messages, weren't they? The prophets prefaced what they said with the words, Thus saith the Lord. And then they would quote to them what they had received from God, And they would speak it to the
1: people. They were conscious that they weren't the originators of this message.
0: The Lord Jesus Christ never relied on human authority. You know, we do. If uh, there's some controversy, we'll quote a famous preacher today to say we agree with him. Or we'll quote from... Uh, The great uh, reformers or the Puritans or the leaders of the evangelical awakening in the past. And we said, this is what they believed. We will hide our own opinions behind other men. Jesus never did that. He never quotes the rabbis. He never shelters himself behind another man. He
1: rarely says, thus saith the Lord. Um, He says, it's written, I I say unto you,
0: verily, verily, I say unto you, he says. And he's content to put his own teaching over against traditional attitudes, traditional religious attitudes, opinions of great rabbis in the past, and he will correct them and disagree with them. Simply on his own authority, he sets up his great I, But I say unto you, as to all the opinions of men and women. He will speak, not in God's name, but he will speak magisterially in his own name, by his own authority. And he will legislate on the basis of that authority, on the basis of his own status. On the basis of his own insight. And he will say things like, He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is. He will say, He has authority to forgive sins, your sins. Jesus has authority to forgive the worst
1: things you've done. He will say, Words about oaths, and is it right to take an oath? He will talk
0: about scripture itself, and whether it's reliable, whether we should read it and study it and memorize it and believe it. And he does so constantly in his own name.
1: I say unto you. Well now that is a self consciousness of staggering proportions. So firstly,
0: there is his originality, his independence of thought. That's one
1: strand of of his authority. Secondly,
0: there is what I want to call his tremendous. Pogency It's not a word that we often use. It's a beautiful word. It means um, being convincing, being clear, being lucid, being forcible and pertinent with a certain lovely clarity about it. The compelling way in which he spoke, the little aphorisms. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but unto God the things that are God's you know, All the things that are there in our minds that we've learned from Jesus Christ.
1: So we are told the common people heard him gladly. The teaching was often profound. The teaching was often controversial and provocative. But when he spoke, they wanted to listen. They pricked up their ears. They could
0: understand much of it. And they were stirred by what he was saying to them. You know, we call... Matthew's chapters 5 and 6 and 7, you know, we call it the Sermon on
1: the Mount. a Tremendously logical and convicting message. But the people
0: went away not so much impressed by what they were hearing.
1: They were impressed by Jesus himself. By his authority. By this brilliant mind, by the arrestingness of what he said, by his cogency, they found it so impressive. You know, when there were
0: devils, there was a time then during his ministry when the senior devils sent the little devils into the land and there was a lot of demon possession, unlike any other time in human history, and Jesus was always delivering people from demonic influence, and he he did the the greatest case of demon possession that this world has seen or ever will see. Um, the gathering demoniac, you know, who could snap chains and live naked in a graveyard.
1: A legion of of demons was in him.
0: Jesus delivered him like that.
1: There was no agonizing and uh, jiggery-pokery. It just went. We say, it just takes a flash of the will that can
0: and the dead are raised. It just takes a flash of the will that can and the legion of demons come out of a person. And you can be released from the God of this world and all his fantasies. And all his lies that have brought such pain into your life. If you cry
1: to Jesus Christ to help you. Now, it seems to me that one
0: consequence of this is when you are troubled with an attack of doubts. When the devil throws his fiery darts at you, and you you are troubled, and you wonder, are you a Christian, and can you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? There's a remedy for that. It's a very simple, but a very potent remedy that you must follow. You must expose
1: yourself to the words of Jesus Christ. That's all. In other words, you must pick up the Bible and you must uh, read it Sunday afternoon. Uh, Write a
0: letter to a friend, an email a friend, and then um, pick up Mark's Gospel. It'll take you an hour, hour and a half, depending on how fast you read, and you can read it through. And you must go back to um, large and consecutive doses
1: of Scripture and read them. Read the Scriptures. If you are doubting, if you are troubled, encounter this uninventable
0: Lord Jesus Christ. Let the cogency of his personality affect you. Touch you. There's a lovely book by Peter Williams called The Reliability of the Gospels. I found it a very delightful book. He's the principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge, and I knew his father and mother, and uh, he's,
1: he shows how wonderfully reliable the Gospels are. And we can use those sorts of arguments, but the final
0: way in which you can overcome your doubts that are keeping you from giving yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ is by exposing yourself, exposing your mind and
1: your affections to the Jesus of the Bible. to read scripture, or to sit in a church week by week, which will
0: direct your attention to the word of God and will open it up and explain it and
1: lay it on you. Letting his teaching fall into your mind. And then it
0: affects your affections and your doubts and your convictions. went in 1961 when I was a young student. I went to Philadelphia for three years to study in Westminster Theological Seminary. And I lived in Machen Hall. And Dr. Machen then founded Westminster Seminary when Princeton went unbelieving and liberal and doubted the reliability and trustworthiness. And he was the professor of New Testament there. And he founded this college. He was brilliant in Princeton. They had sent him to Germany in 1902, to Marburg University. And there he he went to the classes of the leading modernist scholars of the day that influenced German, Germany and France and the Scandinavian countries and the British Isles. And then 20 years later was affecting um, Great Britain. I had a terrible, terrible Um, detrimental effect on the pulpits of the country and they ended up preaching on the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God and that was it. I had uncles, three uncles, who were affected
1: in that way. Now modernism is very attractive. It's got the media in its pocket. It's got the big publishing
0: houses in its pocket. It's got the universities in its pocket. And
1: the propaganda that comes from them all, all the time. And you mustn't think of it as being sort of cerebral and dry. Machen sat with
0: a lot of students in the, these um, high lecture halls. And the men who spoke to him. Their faces shone and their eyes twinkled and they preached with passion. This new Jesus they discovered that taught the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. And the students around him were writing it all down and were filled with breathless excitement about this new Jesus. This Jesus not who did the miracles, not who rose from the dead, not who died as the Lamb of God to take our sin away, but taught us about brotherhood.
1: Mention was really, his mother had taught him, the Jesus of the Bible. She prayed with him as a little boy. He'd gone to a a church,
0: and uh, there the gospel had been preached. He'd made his own profession of faith, and he'd gone to Princeton. He'd sat under Warfield and the other great men of faith And he was confronted with this new, and he wobbled. What did he do? He went back home from the lectures, and he picked up his his Bible, and he turned to Mark's Gospel, and he would read it right through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen chapters.
1: He would read it. He would discover this Jesus again the Jesus he had worshipped, the Jesus who
0: had saved him. Not this other man, this political, social figure, but this glorious saviour who spoke and the winds and waves obeyed him, who had power over demons and power over disease and power over death itself, this supernatural, this this saviour who came from another world. God so loved the world, he gave his only
1: son. Sometimes in moments of doubt, I say to myself, I've got the Bible. I've got this intrusion from another world. I've got this book where I can
0: read about this extraordinary person who came into the world and then watched him and listened to him say. No one never spoke like this one
1: before. I've always loved books. I lived as a boy in the nineteen forties,
0: about a hundred yards away from the local Carnegie library,
1: and I could borrow two books and I went there two or three times a week. I read the library dry out. I did a level English. I've always been a reader. But I find in in this Bible something unique.
0: Something discontinuous with all the other books of the world. Something splendid. Something, you know, here are books that know me. Here's a book that knows me. Here's a book that describes me. Here's a book that searches me. And finds me and speaks to my needs and contains concepts which are unsurpassable in their grandeur and uninventable in their sheer originality. And there are times when I say to myself, if there were no God, I would worship the God who wrote the Bible. So no man ever spoke like this man because of the authority with which he spoke. And I've tried to unravel a number of the strands of his authority. You with me now? The second reason why they said no man ever spoke like this man was because of the tremendous claims that the Lord Jesus made about himself. So, not
1: only his authority, but these staggering statements he made about himself. There's this claim, for example, that one day he is going to judge the world. Matthew 25. He tells us that one day all the world will be gathered before him. And he will assign to everybody their destinies. He will say, Come, ye blessed. He will say, Depart, ye cursed.
0: Now, he told men he was going to do that, and he stood before them. They knew they knew him. They'd been his companions for a year or two, and they knew something about his background. They knew he came from Nazareth.
1: Nothing ever came from Nazareth that was significant. They knew his father was a a carpenter and that he'd worked for twenty five years
0: making window frames and doors and tables and tent posts and so on. And he stood before them in his frailty. He needed to eat. He needed to drink. He was very vulnerable in that way. Nothing distinctive about his outward appearance. There wasn't a halo above his head that followed him everywhere he went. He was found in fashion as a man. He looked utterly human. He just looked human. They knew his roots, they knew his
1: antecedents, they knew something of his biography. They knew he hadn't gone to a posh school. And he stands there before them and he says, I'm going to judge the world. I'm gonna sit on God's throne. I'm going to arbitrate, I'm going to
0: decide. On every single human being's destiny. That's what he said. In other words, if we start with that relatively humble claim, we're facing a self consciousness of staggering proportions. There's nothing ordinary about a man who says he's going to judge me and you and everyone. And he isn't talking about Palestine or the Middle East or one generation, he's talking about. Europe, Asia, Africa, the Americas, Australia, all humanity is talking about angels themselves. But then there is something more wonderful about this judgment. And you know what that is, don't you? Not only will he judge the world, but the criteria, the standards by which he will judge us all, are
1: our relationship to himself how we relate it to him he is the one who will say i never knew you i never knew you i never knew
0: you i said well we cast our demons in your name we did mighty
1: works in your name yeah i never knew you The distinctive thing about eternity and heaven is your relationship to Jesus Christ. He says, if you are ashamed of me,
0: then I will be ashamed of you in that day. It depends on your relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He speaks in a great humanitarian parable at the end of Matthew's gospel about separating like a farmer will put sheep in one field and
1: goats in another. He's going to separate mankind. He'll say to many, "Ah, you looked after me
0: when I was poor and hungry and lonely
1: and sick. And they'll say, "We looked after you. When, when, when did we do that?" And you say,
0: "Ah, uh, you did it to my my body, my my brothers. And as much as you did it to the least of them, you, you were doing it to me. You were doing it because of me, and you were doing it to help those that
1: I'm joined to. Forever, they're my body and their head." Here's this Jesus Christ in all his
0: frailty and in all his meekness. He, the person who washes the feet of his disciples, the person who lives 30 years in Nazareth, the person then of such humility. For when they crucify him, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he's saying the decisive thing. In your eternity
1: is your relationship to me. That's what he says. How you relate to Jesus
0: Christ. How you treat Jesus Christ and his people.
1: He is the judge. And the standard of judgment is your relationship to
0: him. All right. He's going to judge the world and the standards are your relationship to him. And then he goes beyond that. The third claim he makes that I want to draw your attention to, there are so many, but the third thing is this. He claimed pre-existence.
1: I'm saying he said, before Abram was, I am.
0: And there he stands in the middle of time, and he's now in his early 30s, and he's aging with the enormous pressure that there is on him. People waiting outside the place where he slept before dawn because they've got sick people that they want to bring to him. Thousands, 5,000, 7,000 people
1: clamoring to hear him speak. And uh, he's aging. He looks 50. And he says, before Abram was, I am. I go back. I go back. I go back
0: beyond Abram. You began in your mother's womb. You began a number of years, nine months before you were born. You began. That was your beginning. You didn't exist before that. From that moment you began, Jesus says, he was in the beginning. Abram lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus. Before Abram, Jesus said he lived, and he doesn't say, I was. He uses the great words of God to Moses at the burning bush. And who shall I tell them has sent me to redeem them from Egypt? Tell them, I am, has sent you.
1: That's the name of God. The God is the being one. The God whose name is I am. Before Abram was, I am. He's going to judge the world standard of judgment is your relationship to himself
0: he claims pre-existence fourthly he claims to be absolute god he does and you can tell that to the jehovah witnesses when they come and knock on your door and want to talk to you nice people but muddled confused theologically up the creek jesus said i and my father we're one we're one there's not a leaf of indian paper that you
1: can place between god the father and me we're one it doesn't matter where you probe the new testament whether you read what we call the
0: synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke Whether you read John's Gospel or John's letters, whether you read Paul's letters or Peter's letters or the letter of Jude or the book of Revelation,
1: wherever you look, you will find a supernatural Jesus. You will find someone who made the most awe
0: inspiring claims about himself and doing the most awe-inspiring things. When he speaks, the wind obeys him. The waves obey him. He can walk on water. He can heal people in the last stages of an incurable disease and he heals them. No failures.
1: He can cast out demons from a man with a legion of demons in him. He can raise the dead, within of names son, Jairus'
0: daughter, Lazarus himself. In that tomb, on the third day he opened an eye, another eye, and he undid the clothes around him, and he neatly folded them, and the stone had been
1: removed, and out he came in the power of an endless life, more powerful than death. John's
0: gospel begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John's gospel ends with Thomas falling at his feet and saying, my Lord and my God. The child in the manger, the infant of Mary, in all his frailty and humanness, And apparent ordinariness is making these astonishing claims. The challenge I am bringing to you tonight is the challenge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a challenge of the self-consciousness of Jesus Christ. It is the challenge that Jesus Christ is
1: making to be your God. To be the one who made the universe. To be the one who made you. To
0: be the one who will judge the universe. Who will consummate it. That's his claim. He's kept you until now. And he's loved you so much. He's brought you here tonight. And he's brought me here tonight with this message about him. To speak to you. Because he loves you. He's done this. You're a a debtor tonight by being here. To the eternal love of Jesus Christ. So I'm not confronting you tonight with some emotional challenge. I'm confronting you with an intellectual challenge, with something I want you to think and think and think about the veracity, the truthfulness of the claims of Jesus Christ. I don't know how you feel bored full of questions, yes, but,
1: yes, but, yes, but. Or you may feel strangely warmed. My challenge has nothing to do with your feelings. My challenge is this, there was a man on this earth who raised the dead. who spoke and the winds obeyed him, who healed the sick,
0: a man of intellectual massiveness who preached the the Sermon on the Mount or the discourse of the upper room. Wonderful, pure, ethical. There's nothing crazy about him. He's the most sane person that you or I would ever meet.
1: And he claimed to be God. He claimed to be your God, your Lord. And I'm saying to you, you must bow before him, not because you have goose pimples, not because of the tingle factor, not because you think, ah, that Welshman is uh, an orator.
0: That's not the reason Never, never is the reason why you should become a Christian. You should become a Christian
1: if what Jesus Christ says is true. That's the charge, and that's quite independent of how you feel. You might feel He's God, you might
0: feel no fear, you may feel cold. And and no warmth, the question is still the same. Is what Jesus Christ said truth? Now, it's true. Oh, well, if it's true, it has the most massive consequences
1: for our lives. If what he says is true, and we believe it, We are
0: going to a new heavens and a new earth where there's righteousness. If what he says is true and we reject it, we are on our way to hell. I'm standing tonight in the middle of the New Testament and all its streams are flowing around me. The Synoptic Gospels, John's Gospel, Paul's writings, Peter's writings. Wherever I probe, I find a colossal Christ. I find a divine Christ. I find what you must describe and what Londoners must describe as a megalomaniac Christ if
1: what he says are lies. And I'm saying, I am confronting you tonight with a challenge
0: of the claim of the lord jesus christ the possibility that he is god in the flesh and i'm saying to you you will never meet a more important question in all your life than this and you have every right to look at it and examine it and go to the bible and And read it. And check it out for yourself. You've got every right to do that. You can't ignore it. No one could possibly ignore him. When he came into Galilee. And started to preach. You went along and heard him. You had to hear. His sayings. His parables. His teaching. See the people had leprosy. And they were clean.
1: Beautiful. Once again. Well, are you thinking about this? What what do you think
0: about? Think about sport? Or about the royal family?
1: Or about television personalities? Or about politicians? What do you think about? And I'm saying, if what he says is true, you must kneel before him. You must bow before him. You must give him your life. You must give him your heart.
0: You must dedicate the rest of your life then to owning him as your Lord and getting help from him in all the tasks
1: of your life. You say, well, I don't feel anything. Men and women, it's got nothing to do with our feelings. We've got to just put our trust in in Him. I'm talking about the historical fact that Jesus Christ said, "I and my Father are one." Now, those are the words of a maniac, or they are the words of the
0: living God. And I'm saying, if they're the words of God, You must bow the knee and you must bow the knee because the Christian faith is true. And there is no other reason for you to become a Christian than that. And it seems to me that people are being urged to
1: become Christians for other reasons. Because um, they have more happiness.
0: Because they can die in peace. Because they belong to a happy group of people. None of those are good enough for you to become Christians. There's one one reason.
1: One reason only for you all to become Christians. And that is because it is true. And it has a right for the allegiance of every Londoner. I can say, you'll have great comfort from being a Christian.
0: You'll have great hopes. When death comes, as death is going to come, you'll have anticipation if you're a Christian. All that's true.
1: But before all of that is true, on the third day, the tomb was empty. His body was raised. The
0: could not find it. And then he appeared. He appeared again and
1: again. People saw him. People heard him. People responded to him. Five hundred, Eleven. Seven disciples fishing. Two walking on the road to Emmaus. And he went and he talked with them. Is bigger than death, Jesus Christ. And I am asking for your submission from now on.
0: For me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord on the basis of the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. You know, some days I feel religious, some days I feel like a minister, some days I feel prayerful and appreciative, and I've got to. A hunger, to, again, to read the Bible. But the case for Christianity doesn't fluctuate with my feelings. It all hangs on him, this this person, this person that I've been talking to you
1: about. So and I've got one more point very briefly. They said no man ever spoke like this man. Because
0: of his authority. They said no man ever spoke like this man because of his claims. And thirdly, they said no man
1: ever spoke like this man because of his promises. Now, wonderful promises, aren't they? I'm going to prepare a place for you. He who lives and believes in me will never die. I'm with you always to
0: the end of the world, but I just want one promise to close.
1: Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's nowhere in John's gospel that is as wonderful as these words. They roll off our tongues, don't they? You all knew them. We're blind to their glory.
0: Jesus is saying, I have such competence. I have such ability. I have such power. I have such love. I have such authority. I have such compassion that I can give everybody rest. Should all Hounslow get up and Shepherds Bush come? Should all London come? All the boroughs Everybody, get up there! Oh, Jesus is is here tonight, and they're on the windows and the doors, and the traffic is all snarled, and
1: they're listening. Jesus says, "I can cope. Every woman with her anxieties,
0: every man with his antagonisms, every teenager with their problems, every child,
1: every every." I can give you rest if you come to me. He's the great physician, the greatest doctor, the greatest psychiatrist, the greatest counselor that
0: the world has ever seen. And he's saying, okay, come to me. I don't charge
1: anything. Just you come. Coming to Jesus is an activity of your heart,
0: when the word of God is preached and the Holy Spirit has taken these words and he's applied them
1: to every one of you and you're given an assurance that what you're hearing is true and you need Jesus and you say here I am just as I am you say And you start to talk to him. You start to talk to him now. And you keep talking to him. And you keep talking to him until he talks to you again. And gives you an inward assurance that he is your Lord, that he is your Savior. And that from now on, you and he are one. He, you are in him and he is in you
0: forever and forever. And you talk to him until
1: you're given that promise by Jesus Christ. And I want you to do that tonight. I want you, you listened
0: to what I've said so patiently. And I want you from now on to be serving Jesus Christ. I want you to have him as your master, your Lord, your best friend, the great high priest who prays for you in heaven, the shepherd who
1: guards you and keeps you day by day. I I want you to follow him from
0: tonight onwards. You've heard of the claims he makes to be your God.
1: And I want you to say, here I am. Be my God. Be my Savior. And to say it from your heart. In
0: an action, a movement of your will, in a decision that you have to make. Not waiting for the tingle factor. But in the
1: loneliness and isolation of your own life. And from now on. He's going to be your God. The
0: greatest decision you will ever, you'll never make a more important decision than this. And the Holy Spirit can help you. You can't do it without him. So you're saying, Holy Spirit, help me now. Give me grace now. Holy Spirit, help me. Help me now. If this is true, and I believe it is true, to make Jesus Christ my God and my Savior, I want to do this. Help me now.
1: Help me, Lord, to do this. And and you pray, you pray. Until you know he's answered you. And you and Jesus are one forever and ever.